first of all, uh, a very warm welcome to all of you. Um, we all know why we're here, I think, but um, I just wanted to say just a few um, words um, of uh, welcome to you um, and uh, thank you to all of you for coming. Um, I want to thank particularly uh, one or two um, individuals and organisations. Uh, the first, not withstanding, um, is the uh, are the Norwegians who have very generously supported financially this particular event and um, we are very grateful for you for, for that support. Um, there's also some unsung heroes, um, not least uh, Ruth, Jeanette, uh, Rosemary, Alia. Um, you may not realise just how much effort has gone in behind the scenes to get all of you in the right place at the right time uh, and to make this event take place. And I just want to say for me, thank you very much indeed uh, for all your work. The, um, we have been through um, a period of significant conflict. And it's, uh, our interest at the moment has been very much on civil military relations. And I think that the emphasis of that is almost invariably on what elites do, how governments talk to senior military, naval and air personnel, and equally what advice they give back. But um, one of the things that's made Hugh Strawn so different from the discussion we've had in the past on that subject is really his um, insistence that we involve the other element of the Trinity, the people, that there should be a public dialogue about defence about security, about the making of strategy, and about decision-making. It is perhaps to our regret, both of us, or all of us, that the Chilcot Inquiry has not yet been published. I think we are all waiting with interest to see what that produced. But the fact that you are here and we are having a public discussion, um, for me, is wonderful. And the fact that we have Hugh speaking on it this evening. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Um, Professor Sir Hugh Straw, I'm going to hand over to you. Rob, thank you very much. And, and uh, of course, I must thank all those that you've also thanked for making this possible. It is actually truly wonderful to see so many friends, some of very long standing indeed. Um, some of you know things I probably don't want you to repeat in uh, current contexts, and some of you, I hope, uh, are not that old friends, um, and therefore see me as a more respectable citizen, at least some of the time. Um, it is, I hear the echo, uh, let me just say, the acoustics okay? We, we had Dave Petraeus, Change of Character War Program, I had Dave Petraeus here giving a lecture last year, uh, or oh, he wasn't a lecturer, it was a conversation with Nick Parker, and I said, it's a debating chamber, it must be okay to do it without any assistance uh, on the audio side. And then afterwards, poor Ruth got a barrage of emails from people saying they couldn't hear. Um, so this is erring on the side of caution. Um, what I want to say, and Rob's trailed it, is a bit about strategy and democracy. I have to say I chose the title when Ali Ibrahimi said to me, what's your title? I said, oh, strategy and democracy, I said. Um, I thought about it rather more recently. Um, but I think, as Rob said, it is something which I feel one way or another has been close to my intellectual interests. And I want to begin with um, something that also reflects what I'd never expected to be doing when I came to Oxford in the end of 2001, beginning of 2002, um, and that is uh, talk about a visit to Afghanistan in June 2012. On the anniversary of Waterloo, on the 18th of June, I went with a group uh, of other academics and policy wonks and so on from NATO member states to Kabul University uh, to meet a class of law and politics students. Uh, and naively, we had imagined that with the election of President Karzai, or not his election, sorry, the election of his successor uh, on the agenda, that that was what we were going to talk about. Indeed, I was rather looking forward to hearing what they would say about President Karzai's succession. In practice, the Afghans wanted to talk about the security position 
about NATO's ongoing commitment to Afghanistan and about the problems of Taliban safe havens uh, in Pakistan. Uh, one particularly outraged student referred to President Obama's visit to Kabul uh, just over six weeks previously. Um, on the 1st of May 2012, uh, the President and the President of Afghanistan, Karzai, had signed the enduring strategic partnership between the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and the United States of America. The agreement included arrangements for a long-term security partnership and for the possibility of US forces remaining in Afghanistan after 2014, as it said, for the purposes of training Afghan forces and targeting the rem remnants of Al-Qaeda. The agreement was trumpeted on Afghan television that day, both by Obama and by Karzai. But that agreement was not what agitated uh, the Afghan student. What had outraged him was that in the early hours of the following morning, that was to say one minute past four, having just checked this uh, on the internet, one minute past four uh, in the morning, Afghan time, um, President Obama had been on television again. And on this occasion, he had been speaking not to the Afghan people, but to the people of the United States from Bagram Air Base. And he told the American people, our troops will be coming home. Both statements are, of course, compatible. But for this Afghan, here was one voice earlier in the day, or the previous day, saying the United States was saying, and here was another voice saying the United States are going. Famously, in 2005, General Sir Rupert Smith, who's been a very good friend to the Changing Character World Programme, I'm sorry he can't be here today, uh, wrote a book which he called The Utility of Force, The Art of War in the Modern World, in which he characterised today's wars as wars amongst the people. There are moments when I read essays and dissertations which quote that, which just make me feel, you know, let's move on. Uh, but uh, it was a fair enough observation in that it reflected his experience in Northern Ireland and in Bosnia. And of course, when he wrote it, it caught the emerging concerns of British and American soldiers in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Uh, they were engaged as armies in most counterinsurgency campaigns have been engaged in securing the loyalty of the local population. Wars amongst the people have characterized the operating environment in which armies have often, and especially recently, found themselves. My focus this evening is not with the operating environment, but with the strategic context. What does wars among the people mean in the making of national strategy? And my concern is not so much with the, the uh, loyalties of peoples caught in the crossfire of a combat zone, but with the role of peoples in mature democracies in the formation of strategic decisions. In May 2012, President Obama gave one message to the people of Afghanistan and another to the people of the United States. He told each what he thought they wanted to hear, and in the process, he caused confusion and disarray. He's not alone. Our own Prime Minister, David Cameron, said in 2010 that Britain would end its war in Afghanistan by 2015. Of course, we ended it formally just before that, and went on to explain uh, that he had set a clear withdrawal date because the British people expected it and they were right to do so. He said nothing about the objectives of the United, Kingdom, United Kingdom's government within Afghanistan or the potential consequences of the timing for the Afghan people or what a desirable outcome might look like for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Both the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom were effectively treating their electorates as partners in the decision-making process. That, for me, is much more significant in the making of strategy 
than waging wars amongst the people. In the latter, the people are treated as the passive objects of influence. In the former, they become active participants in the formation of policy. But as Pre uh, President Obama's mixed message on the 1st of May 2012 showed, the people in the theatre of war and the people at home are not so easily separated, especially if we follow the cliché which we don't seem to be able to avoid uh, and of which we are so often reminded that we live in an interconnected world, a world in which the transmission of news lies no longer in the hands of professional journalists uh, or can be so easily managed by governments. Today, the message given in the theatre of operations cannot in practice diverge from that given at home without running the risk of inconsistency at best and direct self-contradiction at worst. Both Obama and Cameron chose deadlines for the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan which bore less relationship to the possible situation in Afghanistan and much more to the political and electoral situations within the United States and the United Kingdom. Do I need to move this thing down a bit? I can hear, my, you know, that better? Good. I'm getting a nod from Audrey, so it must be all right. Um, their objectives were defined less in terms of identifiable objectives within Afghanistan and more in terms of what came to be called exit strategies. Exits are not strategies. Exits are perhaps means or possibly ways, but they're certainly not ends. But by admitting the role of democracy in strategy, the leaders of democratic states have put themselves between a rock and a hard place. In order to explain to their nations why their armed forces are engaged in faraway places of which their peoples know little, they use the vocabulary of mass mobilisation borrowed from the Second World War. They are ready to let these wars be called wars of choice, but they use vocabulary which suggests they are wars of necessity. To be fair to President Obama, he has been much more circumspect in this regard than George W. Bush was. Uh, he was only too happy to cite Pearl Harbour after the 9-11 attacks, uh, and of course Tony Blair uh, compared the potential appeasement of Saddam Hussein uh, with the appeasement of Adolf Hitler. But the consequence of Obama's circumspection has been a reputation for indecision, for lack of clarity and for a failure to provide the strategic leadership required not just by the United States but by NATO and the West as a whole. The alternative is no better, as David Cameron's record shows. Three times as Prime Minister, he has spoken of an existential conflict, of a generational war, or of direct threats to the British way of life. In 2011, over Libya, in January 2013, over the Al-Qaeda attack on the BP gas installation in Algeria, and in June 2015, most recently, of course, after the IS-inspired attack on British citizens in Sousse in Tunisia. What his words expose is the gap between the rhetoric and his intent. He speaks big but does little. For a people engaged in so many existential wars simultaneously, you all look remarkably comfortable and secure, remarkably at peace and remarkably unconcerned, and in that you reflect most of British society. The effect of democracy on strategic decision-making seems to be that national leaders have to overpromise and then underdeliver, or overdramatize and then underperform, when they should be underpromising and overdelivering. If substance matched rhetoric, Britain would be doing much more than committing 2% of its GDP to defence, if indeed it is committing that. CDS will probably put me right on whether I've got that right or not. There is a conundrum here. Democratic leaders are under pressure to hype the threat precisely because their electorates don't feel threatened. And yet the more they do so, the less convinced their public seem to be. 
Gordon Brown, as Prime Minister, explained the war in Afghanistan in terms which related to domestic security. He said British troops were fighting, killing and dying in Helmand to keep the streets of London safe. The public was not convinced, and nor were many of the soldiers. Democracy has so associated itself with material and personal security, with the functioning of liberal capitalism, that it has divorced itself from war. The identity of the state itself is weakened by its reliance on supranational organisations like the EU, NATO and the United Nations, and by its passing of what used to be state functions to private companies or to multinational corporations. This process applies even within defence with the growth of private military companies. Democracy has become associated with peace, not with war. Democracies are characterised as risk and casualty averse, and they are seen as reluctant to be taxed in order to provide funds for national security. Underpinning this set of assumptions is the master narrative of the democratic peace. In 1989, Jack Levy wrote that, to quote him, the absence of war between democracies comes as close as anything we have to an empirical law in international relations. The belief in democratic peace argues that democracies rarely go to war with one another uh, and that that is a consequence of the character of democracy. Of course, democratic peace theory does not rule out the probability or possibility of democracies fighting non-democracies. But that in itself raises the question of what a democracy is and what is not a democracy. In 1914, and I've got a reference to the First World War, of course. In 1914, Britain had the lowest level of male suffrage of any of the belligerents, original belligerents, except Hungary. About 60% of British males aged over 21 had the vote. In Germany, every male was able to vote. Even states that political scientists would classify as non-democracies are not necessarily states without mass participation, a point true not just of Germany in the First World War, but also of Germany in the Second World War. The assumption that things are otherwise is a product of the master narrative of liberalism, an inheritor of the weak view of history, and an assumption that liberal democracy will produce not just domestic, but also international harmony. Its logical corollary is that democracies find it hard to make war. There is, after all, in many minds, an inherent tension between the words I have chosen for my title this evening, strategy and democracy. Historically, this is absurd. From classical Athens to modern America, democracies have waged war and done so through a participatory decision-making system. Much of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, I should say quickly as I was leaving college just now, I saw Simon Hornblower as I was going out and I said, Thucydidean, I, well, I'm not Thucydidean, he is. I thought I should stop and just check what I was going to say was okay. Uh, but I didn't have the time, having left it too late. But I think this bit is pretty unacceptable. Now, much of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War is concerned with exactly this, the problems of Athens as a democracy in waging war coherently and consistently. I'm not going to go to ancient history. Instead, I'm going to begin this series of reflections with the Enlightenment and the 18th century. The idea of the democratic peace, after all, takes its argument from Immanuel Kant's essay on perpetual peace. Kant argued that republics would enjoy peace with other republics. And he wrote that in 1795, when Europe was still exploring the foothills of a series of wars which would last another 20 years. Wars driven by the French Republic fighting, as it claimed, for liberty, equality and fraternity against a league of absolute monarchies. 
Despite the horrors which the wars of the French Revolution brought to Europe, most French revolutionaries, at least in 1795, would not have disagreed with Kant. They, as they saw it, were waging war to bring perpetual peace. The reason that France found itself at war, they believed, was not the fault of France, but the fault of autocracies and absolute monarchies that failed to recognise the need to democratise, that failed to recognise the need to give power to the people. But against this narrative ran a powerful alternative. The notion that democratisation was a tool for national mobilisation in time of war. The French officer, the aristocratic and enlightened Comte de Guibert, first published his Essai General de Tactique anonymously in 1770, but then under his own name in 1772 and in an English translation in 1781. Most of those who quote Guibert do so by citing a passage, which I too will quote, uh, partly because I want to come back to it later. Let us suppose in Europe, Guibert wrote, let us suppose in Europe there was to spring up a vigorous people with genius, with power and a happy form of government, a set of people that to strict virtue and a national soldiery joined a fixed plan of aggrandizement, who never lost sight of that system, who, knowing how to carry on a war with little expense and subsist by their conquests, was not reduced to the necessity of laying down their arms by the calculation of financiers. Guibert then proceeded to argue that for France, the first step to a successful exterior policy was domestic political reform. Interior politics, having thus prepared a state, he went on, Guibert went on, with what facility external politics can resolve upon the system of her own interests in opposition to her foreign ones by the raising of a respectable military power. How easy it is, Guibert wrote, to have armies invincible in a state where its subjects are citizens, where they cherish and revere government, where they are fond of glory, where they are not intimidated at the idea of toiling for the general good. As an army officer, Guibert was, of course, a servant of the king. But he dedicated his book not to Louis, but to my country. He included the king, Francis' father, as he called him, within that. But he also addressed the book to ministers, its administrators, that is, the administrators of France, to all ranks of the state, its members, to the people, its children. He looked forward to the day when all its members would be united. As he put it, may the ruler and his subjects, the high and low degrees of the community, feel themselves honoured with the title of citizens. Guibert died after a short illness on the 6th of May 1790. By then, the French Revolution had not reached its apogee in the, terror, in the terror, nor had the transformation of the French state yet revolutionised the structure of the French army. By 1795, those developments, both of them, were much more obvious. Revolutionary France treated those who opposed the logic of its own position its conflation of the revolution with universal principles to, co to, conclude, sorry, to conclude that its enemies were politically backward. In the Vendée, Catholic, counter-revolutionary peasants were not treated as naive and ill-educated, but as part of a conspiracy against the revolution and its government. They were treated instead, therefore, as political actors, and about a quarter of a million men, women and children or a quarter of the population of the Vendée, were exterminated by the revolutionary armies in 1793-1794. Captain Dupuis of the French Revolutionary Armies wrote from the Vendée to his sister in January 1794, wherever we go, we are bringing fire and death. Age, sex, nothing is being respected. Yesterday, one of our detachments burned a village. One volunteer, killed three women with his own hands. It is atrocious, but, and this is the crux, but the safety of the Republic demands it imperatively.
Part of that urgency related to the fact that revolutionary France faced an external threat as well as an internal one. It was simultaneously fighting the war of the First Coalition against Britain, Austria and Prussia. In 1797, a Hanoverian serving in the Prussian army, the son of an NCO, Gerhard von Scharnhorst, published his general reflections on the armies in the Revolutionary Wars and tried to provide some sort of explanation why the French Revolutionary Army had so surprised those of the old order and had formed with, fought with so much success. And his answer to that problem was that the French army had been transformed by the revolution, by the political impulse given to its army as a result, and by the identification of the soldier with the nation. For Scharnhorst, as for other military reformers in the following decade and more, citizenship created soldiers with a stake in the nation who were readier to fight and die because they had rights than were the soldiers of pre-1789 monarchies. In the wars against Napoleon, Prussians were forced to sit on their hands between the end of that war of the First Coalition in 1795 and the Jena campaign of 1806, and again to sit on their hands after the Treaty of Tilsit, Peace of Tilsit in 1808, beginning of 1808, and the War of so-called National Liberation in 1813. And the officers uh, who were associated with Scharnhorst, uh, including, of course, Neisenau and Clausewitz, looked to Spain and Italy for evidence of effective resistance against France, resistance waged by guerrillas motivated, as they saw it, by national sentiment. Scharnhorst was a father figure to Clausewitz, and Clausewitz shared the frustration of his mentor and of Neisner, and together they plotted a war of national liberation in defiance of the wishes of their own king. In February 1812, Clausewitz sent a long three-part memorandum to Neisenau, which called on the German nation to wage a war of national liberation, mobilising the entire population, ready to use terror and prepared to die rather than to admit defeat. He specifically quoted Guibert, going back to that first quotation from Guibert and the most familiar one, even if, of course, being Clausewitz, he never acknowledged his sources. He called for a people with genius, with power, and a happy form of government. This was the Clausewitz, who, when he wrote Book 8, Chapter 3 of On War, identified the French Revolution as having put the state's mobilisation for war on a new and unprecedented level. To quote Michael Howard's and Peter Perret's translation, suddenly war again, the last time had been uh, Roman Republic, Suddenly, war again became the business of the people, a people of 30 millions, all of whom considered themselves to be citizens. The people became a participant in war. Instead of governments and armies, as heretofore the full weight of the nation, uh, sorry, as heretofore, the full weight of the nation was thrown into the balance. Clausewitz was clear um, about what had happened, and the question for him was whether that would be the pattern in the future. From now on, he asked, will every war in Europe be waged with the full resources of the state and therefore have to be fought only over major issues that affect the people? Or shall we again see a gradual separation taking place between government and people? Clausewitz was clear about the enormous contribution the heart and temper of a nation can make to the sum total of its political, of, of its politics, sorry, of its politics, its war potential, and its fighting strength. Rob's already referred to the Clausewitzian Trinity, and this is where the Trinity fits in. In Book One of On War, Clausewitz described war as being made up of three parts: passion, the play of probability and chance, and reason. He then associated each of those qualities with three particular groups of actors, uh, with uh, the, the, the passion with the people, the play of probability and chance uh, with the army and its commanders, and reason with the government. But he also made absolutely clear, in a way which, for too many modern, which, in a way which too many modern readers neglect, 
that those relations, the relations between those three component parts, either the primary trinity or the secondary trinity, were not fixed. He did not rule out a people that was passionate and rational. Indeed, much else that he wrote about 19th century warfare was conditioned on the realisation that European civilization did not preclude the need to abandon moderation and embrace terror. Nor is the relationship between war and policy fixed in the Trinity. It too can fluctuate with the rational element of policy submerged by passion or by the contingencies of the battlefield. The problem with recent, largely predominantly Anglophone readings of on war is this determination to rest it within a view of strategy that sees a linear relationship between policy and war and an elite relationship between generals and politicians in the making of strategy and a making of strategy which then excludes the people. The roles of the people and possibly of passion become subordinated. To be fair, after the defeat of Napoleon, Clausewitz could be seen as colluding in this process. The French Revolution was seen to have brought uh, war, protracted, destructive, and to use a neologism, total, uh, to Europe. Preventing revolution could prevent war. And so separating revolution from war and war from revolution was high on the list of most monarchs when they met at Vienna in 1815. One of them was Friedrich Wilhelm III of Prussia, whose authority Clausewitz had so directly challenged in 1812 by appealing to the German nation rather than to the Prussian king, and by then resigning from the Prussian army and from the royal service to serve in the army of Russia. By 1819, Clausewitz knew which side his bread was buttered if he wanted a job, and he realised that if he required and depended on preferment in post-war Prussia, he better moderate his proposals for military reform, specifically his proposals for the reform of the landwehr, that carried directly political implications and said something about some sort form of implicit citizenship. So the idealistic conflation of citizenship and military service, of political awareness and the defence of the nation, was moderated after 1815, and not just in Prussia. Armies became less instruments for national mobilisation and more tools of counter-revolutionary domestic order. The debate about democratisation and war became one bound up above all with the idea of the nation in arms, uh, of military service in its terms, and conscription became less a manifestation of liberation and political awareness, the full idealist, full idealized form it had had in the 1790s, and more, <coughs> and more a mechanism for social control. Broadly speaking, in 1848, armies remained loyal to their governments. By 1914, mass armies could be raised without too much attention uh, being paid to the corollary that they should see themselves as politically aware partners in the making of national strategy. The debate hadn't gone away, of course. It remained vibrant in France, not least thanks to Jean Jaurès's L'Armée Nouvelle, uh, and with socialists, of course, arguing that citizen soldiers would fight purely defensive wars. But in 1916, Britain could introduce conscription without simultaneously adopting universal military male suffrage. In 1917-18, Britain, France and Germany all addressed the issue of political education and their armed forces, believing it was important to produce motivated bodies of men, but in none of them was that programme adequately fulfilled. Even in revolutionary Russia, where of course there were advocates for soldiers who should be politically aware, most evidently Frunzi, there were others who said professional qualifications should trump political ones, uh, and for that reason Trotsky argued that Tsarist officers should be included within the Revolutionary Army. And in Germany, at the war's end, as Michael Geyer has written, uh, Ludendorff called in October for national mobilisation, for a nation in arms, 
uh, but it remained an idea in embryo which others turned against and which indeed contributed to the loss of respect which Ludendorff experienced at that, uh, in the period leading up to the armistice. I'm not suggesting that the First World War ended the idea of the politicised soldier. The men who would fight because they were committed to a set of overarching values were still there. Uh, in the Second World War, both the Wehrmacht, as it's understood by Omar Bartov at any rate, and the Soviet army would stress the value systems for which they fought. And as in the First World War, the armies of Western democracies again established programs of political education. But something much more profound began to happen, at least in the ideas of these Western democracies. Those who were motivated for political reasons to fight were more often seen to be insurgents, radicals, and revolutionaries. The First World War changed the relationship of established democratic powers to revolution and its place within war. Popular mobilisation and political awareness, universal suffrage and a mass popular press made the people full participants in the war. But it also made the commitment of the people itself to the war and to the state a potential source of weakness. In the Napoleonic Wars, revolution had led to war. In the First World War, war led to revolution. That was, of course, a fear which many national leaders expressed in July 1914 itself, including Srebrenica Grey in this country, Bettmann Holweg in Germany, and Tsar Nicholas in Russia. Once the war broke out, Germany aimed to export revolution to the empires of its enemies, to Britain, France and Russia. But it did so not just in a colonial context, but also in Dublin and ultimately in Petrograd. Britain did the same, exporting revolution to the Ottoman Empire, and in 1917-18 the Allies were ready to promote revolution also within Germany and Austria-Hungary. Democracy had become a source of vulnerability as well as of strength. It was no longer just about its capacity for mass mobilisation, but also potentially a source of introspection and domestic concern. After, Britain's, after 1918, Britain's blockade of Germany became rationalised as the instrument that had persuaded the German people to turn against their Kaiser and to overthrow their government in the final stages of the war. In 1939-40, Britain planned to repeat the act, to use economic warfare once more, but with the overrunning of most of Europe, that was no longer a possibility. Instead, by the winter of 1941-42, the strategic bombing offensive had been fashioned into an instrument designed to target German civilian morale. As Thomas Hitler has shown in his study of Douai, the ideas of strategic bombing in Douai's hands drew their origins precisely from Douai's awareness of the relationship between citizenship and modern war, and his readiness to argue that citizens were actually responsible political actors who were therefore regarded as potential targets. In 1944, after D-Day, Allied intelligence was searching for the signs of another German stab in the back, of another coup against Hitler, and on the basis of that, were expecting the war to end uh, by, the, by December 1944. Of course, in the Western narrative, their own populations were robust and loyal. It was the populations of authoritarian regimes which were vulnerable and fickle. The presumption here was that the offer of democratisation would cause the people to turn against their own uh, autocratic leaders and embrace uh, support for their invaders. A presumption put to the test most recently, of course, in the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and found wanting, just as it was found wanting in Germany in 
Between 1945 and the end of the Cold War, the Western democracies did not have to engage with the role of the people in the making of strategy at any sustained and serious level. Their armed forces were actively engaged in the wars fought as part of the withdrawal from empire. The promoters of democracy were colonial resistance movements, not the powers of Europe or the United States. Students of my generation, I went up in May 68, no, I didn't go up in May 68, that my generation all maintained they'd been on the barricades in May 68. I went up in October 68. Um, students of my generation all read Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, no, not all of them, some of them did, uh, and put posters of Che Guevara on their walls. These were the icons of the enemy, not of the constituent elements of the Trinity in the making of national strategy. And at home, nuclear weapons made the people potential targets of attack, as they had been in the Second World War, but they were now perpetually bound as hostages to deterrence. They became passive pawns more than potentially active participants uh, whose loyalties might be affected. When they protested against their role in the nexus of deterrence, as they did in some cases through the campaign for nuclear disarmament or through opposition to cruise missiles, they were identified with subversive influences uh, with the influences of the putative enemy uh, seen as weakening the state, not strengthening it. Nuclear weapons had the effect, therefore, of demobilising the democratic strengths of Western governments. And they did so in two more direct ways. The first way in which they did so was that nuclear weapons acted as one element in the swing away from the mass army a process directly linked here in Britain because the Sands White Paper of 1957 simultaneously embraced nuclear deterrence and rejected conscription. Other states did not do it quite so explicitly and did it much more slowly. But think where France, uh, the home of the nation in arms, uh, the uh, sponsor, if you like, above all, of the citizen-soldier, think where France is today. Uh, nearly two decades on from its own decision to abandon conscription and to embrace the idea of the professional army. Democracies no longer presume that going to war will require the active participation of their citizens as a body. And the second way in which nuclear weapons uh, were attractive or had an effect in terms that they were attractive for this reason but they also had an effect in demobilising democracy was that nuclear weapons were a cheap option. This is all comparative, of course. They were a way of maintaining a major military option at a containable cost while not engaging in active uh, hostilities. And the challenge of the Cold War was how to maintain a large military establishment uh, while not actually fighting a major war to justify that large military establishment. Nuclear, the beauty of nuclear weapons was that you were able to square that particular circle. But the corollary of that was that you maintained a large military establishment at comparatively low cost relatively. In the 19th century, both Sir Robert Peel as a, 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 as a peacetime prime minister and his heir, uh, even if another party, uh, William Ewart Gladstone, had argued that income tax, uh, introduced of course originally in Britain as a war tax during the Napoleonic Wars, would inhibit Britain's appetite for war. They argued that if Britain went to war, the rate of income tax would have to go up, uh, and that would actually give Parliament pause and might actually lead it to reflect on the wisdom of doing this. The corollary of that was that taxation was a form of wider participation in the decision-making process which war required. If going to war forced up the rate of income tax, then there had to be a parliamentary debate about income tax as well as about going to war. And indeed, the argument about income tax would be rather more vociferous uh, and rather more central 
to the running of the state than that of going to war. That relationship uh, between the cost of war and the decision to embrace it was weakened during the Cold War uh, by that reliance on nuclear weapons and seems to me to be, have been almost completely broken after 2003. One of the most remarkable aspects of the wars waged by Western democracies since 9-11 is that they are effectively presented to their publics as cost-free. Joseph Stiglitz and Linda Billman made this point in relation to the United States in their book, The Three Trillion Dollar War. Three trillion was then their estimate of the eventual overall costs, including indirect costs, including medical costs, including opportunity costs, including interest payments for the United States of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The point they were making could apply equally well in the United Kingdom. We don't actually know what the cost of our participation in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan will turn out to be because we're still living with those costs and we're still absorbing them, many of them incurred indirectly. Neither Tony Blair nor Gordon Brown mobilised the people of Britain for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and in particular did not mobilise them for the war in Iraq in 2003, by asking them to fund Britain's military effort through increased taxation or through that incredibly fashionable word, austerity. Instead, the democracies hid the costs of war and struggled to answer direct questions designed to elicit them. When the economic crash came in 2008-9, nobody suggested that the waging of protracted war had any role in creating national deficits or in causing the crash. I'm not suggesting that they did, but it still seems to me remarkable that nobody made the links. Both directly and indirectly, therefore, the place of democracy in the making of strategy through the active participation of the citizen soldier or through the indirect contribution of the enfranchised taxpayer has become marginalised. The effect is that the making of strategy today is no longer trinitarian, if we're not overworking that word. And we have adopted a model of civil-military relations designed to reflect that, designed effectively to exclude the people. In 1957, Sam Huntington wrote The Soldier and the State. It was a book designed to address the specific problems within civil-military relations for the United States in the era of the Cold War. In comparison with its earlier experiences of major war, the US, after 1945, did not simply demobilize and go back home. Instead, it maintained large armed forces in peacetime. And that, for Huntington, introduced into the making of policy a significant new actor, one which might acquire an overmighty and preponderant influence. The United States of the Revolution, of the War of Independence, like the France of 1789, had embraced what Huntington called subjective military control. The idea that the citizen soldier would, by virtue of his combination of civic rights and military obligations, become the symbol of a national will, and that politicised intent and military capability could be fused in one. The militia's central position in 18th century American political thought is, of course, the justification for the constitutional right to bear arms today. Instead, Huntington stressed what he called objective military control, the idea that armed forces are controlled by their governments. The focus here is not on the people, but on the relationship between elites, between the government and their chiefs of staff. This is the model of civil-military relations which required President Obama to sack General Stanley McChrystal in 2009 because he criticised the President's strategy in Afghanistan. And this, in the United Kingdom, is the model of civil-military relations which produced in 2010 a National Security Council, but a National Security Council 
which is actually reluctant to engage in external consultation on national strategy and is reluctant to have a national debate about such issues as Trident and nuclear weapons, neither of which is currently intended to be included within the 2015 national security strategy. British views on the renewal of Trident are, according to opinion polls, just about equally divided, with a small majority in favour of having them. A small majority, I think I'm right in saying, though of course these fluctuate even in Scotland, uh, although Nicola Sturgeon doesn't believe that's true. Um, this has not stopped Alex Salmon arguing in a speech given uh, on the 11th of September, just the other day, that a unilateral UK government decision to renew Trident could be one of four conditions which would justify the Scottish Government in calling for a second referendum on Scottish independence. So the third largest party in today's UK Parliament, the SNP, is opposed to nuclear weapons. And the second largest party, the Labour Party, is now caught in a debate on nuclear weapons also, although it seems as though it will resolve itself in terms of sticking to its current position, but is caught in debate by virtue of Jeremy Corbyn's election as its party leader. If both the second and third ranking parties in the country are concerned about the future of nuclear weapons, it seems to me very odd that we do not have a national debate about them. The public debate about deterrence in Britain today is frankly infantile, and it treats its publics as infants. There are those in favour assert that we don't know what threats may emerge in 50 years' time. True, but a pretty hopeless argument if you're trying to explain the relevance of deterrence today. Uh, those against nuclear weapons assert that nuclear weapons will not deter suicide bombers. That is also true, but it's a pretty hopeless argument with regard to every other sort of threat. If the electorate of a democratic state is not implicated in the making of national strategy, it cannot be expected to identify with the objectives of that strategy. Its belief that soldiers are victims, not victors, the perception that it is, as a society, casualty-averse, itself, or themselves, weaken deterrence. It inhibits national leaders from acting, and if our opponents believe that there is no national appetite to use force, then our deterrence posture is itself built on sand. That, I would argue, is at least one conclusion President Putin drew after the Syria debate in August 2013, drawing a red line and then deciding that the red line had disappeared, uh, created a permissive environment within which uh, he could act. Since 2009 and the election of President Obama, we have seen the adoption of more limited means for waging what is still presented as a long war and even some respect, in some respects still presented as a global war on terror. Instead of boots on the ground, Western democracies prefer a mix of air attacks and weaponized drones supplemented by special forces and by training teams. Uh, the purpose of those training teams, of course, is to impart the necessary military skills to local proxies. This is a set of solutions which elevates means to ends, which makes viable tactical options, special forces, drones and so on, into a strategy in its own right, one most visible today in northern Iraq and in Syria, but developed originally in the context, of course, of Pakistan and of Yemen. The trouble is, it doesn't be seen, seem to be working. Of course, the, of course, one reason that it does not work is because it fails to address the war among the people, in Rupert Smith's sense. Uh, and now those people, as we all know, are leaving the theatre of war to come here to Europe, and specifically, of course, some of them, to the United Kingdom. But as importantly, it also does not work for the people at home, for the people here in the United Kingdom, for our own populations and for our electorates. 
And that is so, it seems to me, for four reasons. The first reason is this. The articulation of the idea of limited war, because that, after all, is what we tend to be engaged in at the moment, is totally inadequate. Western governments approve the means of limited war, but our national leaders do not embrace, at least overtly, a strategy of limited war, and so means and ends stand in direct contradiction to each other. Instead, they use the vocabulary of major war, which in turn um, carries the expectation or generates the expectation in the public mind that there will be an unequivocal and quick outcome uh, to that war. Limited wars tend to end rather less satisfactorily and with rather less clear outcomes, even if they're waged successfully. The second reason is this. In the Cold War, governments could engage in limited wars, often indeed using proxies or special forces, but could do so under the radar without the full consciousness of the public on whose behalf they were engaging those operations. Today, the change in digital communications, or the development of digital communications, the mobilization of mass media, and so on, make this effectively impossible. The result is a paradox. Democratic governments, confronted with one of the most powerful agents for mass mobilization, and indeed precisely for democratization, seem to stand transfixed in the headlines, headlights, and in the headlines probably too, uh, unable to embrace what is now called the strategic narrative. A narrative which extraordinarily is much more clearly articulated by the opponents of Western democracy, whether those opponents are Russia or ISIS. Thirdly, our model of civil military relations is broken. Subjective military control has to sit alongside objective military control, not be relegated to the margins. Heads of state cannot have one conversation with their electorates, saying the boys are coming home, and a totally different one with their military advisers. The military, despite being professional forces, find themselves, very often against their own wishes, much more in the public spotlight. And of course, here in this country, movements like Help for Heroes and so on have contributed that, to that. The result is they need to have their own conversation with the public so that the latter can understand better the challenges that face the armed forces and the considerations that drive strategy. A Trinitarian relationship assumes not only that all three components are participants in national strategy, but that all those three components can talk to each other in a three-way relationship. And the fourth reason is this. For those of you who believe I can't count beyond three, I'm just about to prove that's not true. The fourth reason is this. We have become bogged down partly through a proactive use of force in Kosovo in 1999, in Libya in 2011, as well as in Iraq and Afghanistan. We have become bogged down in a debate on strategy and democracy which focus very largely on the initiation of war and not on its continuation. The debate is all about why do we go to war in the first place? And of course, that is a crucially important discussion to have. In the United States, the President is locked in an arm wrestle with Congress on exactly these issues, and the Constitution, of course, is designed to create that, that wrestling match. In the United Kingdom, we have no such constitutional constraint, but we have now come to believe that we cannot go to war without parliamentary approval. The Prime Minister, naturally enough, perhaps responding to the shadow of Iraq, acts as though if Parliament says no, he cannot act. The effect is further to weaken the deterrent capacity of democratic states, both because it makes it hard for the head of state to act and act with speed, which he may often have to do, and also because, of course, it creates another element in the state which is uncertain and which putative opponents recognise. 
Now, those four reasons are, of course, challenges to the strategy democracy nexus. But they also carry their own implicit solutions. A coherent approach to limited war, a more effective management of media and communications, a more sophisticated system of civil military relations, and a readiness to accept that Congress and Parliament are acting as strategic inquisitors, which very often they are, all those might produce fresh approaches uh, to uh, open the door to, better making, to the better making of strategy and to the better making of strategy in democratic states in the 21st century. Thank you very much.